Thank you, James. If you do ask him for details of that, be ready for some gory details that you don't want to have over lunch. Uh, so, um, well, it's good to be with you uh, uh, this morning. Uh, it's a real pleasure to, to have this opportunity. And I just want to say thanks to the, uh, the worship team. What a wonderful time of, uh, of worship that uh, so many talented students at Tyndale. It's really, really great. Um, for some of us, we might think that there's like a big, going to be a big shift or a big glaring difference between what we just spent time doing, worshiping our Lord and Savior and singing of His goodness, uh, to now shifting and talking about the importance of the mind. And what I hope we gather by the time we're done is that there's no reason at all to separate those two, that the, both of these are true, genuine, meaningful, needed ways in which we love our God. Uh, in fact, I think actually trying to separate out sort of the life of the mind from the life of the worship arts uh, is actually quite detrimental, and I I hope to make uh, the case for that uh, this morning. So um, the title of today's talk is The Often Overlooked Importance of Renewing Your Mind. And some of you might think this is an odd topic for me to choose, given that we are an institution of higher education. There are students all over the place who are literally taking time out of their lives to develop their minds. So why, why this topic? Well, primarily, I'm hoping that this is a message of encouragement to you. Um, this is the time of the semester when students are scrambling to finish essays and other kinds of projects, are beginning to worry about upcoming final exams uh, that they'll have to take. Uh, faculty members are scrambling to mark all of these assignments and give you something that resembles meaningful feedback on them. Uh, staff are scrambling to get ready for graduation that's around the corner and then a, another term that will begin right after that. This is a hectic time in our life. So why do we do this? Why Every term do we put ourselves through this, knowing that there will be times of anxiety, times of stress. Um, Well, I hope you leave this morning with a greater understanding of just why it is that what we're doing right now is so important and it's so worth it. Now, to help us see why this is so important, I think we might need to first take a quick step back and assess uh, the standing of the contemporary church in our culture. Uh, now, you could do that in a lot of different ways through a lot of different lenses, and, and no matter how you do it, uh, you should be warned that when we have an objective evaluation of where we stand in our culture, it's not all that pretty. Uh, there's a lot of different things that we could focus on, but because this is an institution of higher education, I want to focus on one issue, namely what our culture thinks about our ability to think. Now, there's a great book called uh, Unchristian that has a whole bunch of these different accounts. And and if you're ready to be awakened to the problems facing our contemporary church whenever we think about what others around us think about us, uh, I highly recommend the book. Um, This morning, I'm just going to talk about one telling statistic. According to the book's authors... Over 70% of the people surveyed said that they believed present-day Christians are out of touch with reality. Later in the book, the authors note that, quote, many outsiders believe Christianity insulates people from thinking. Often, young people, including many insiders, doubt that Christianity boosts the intellect. This is a problem, and this is a problem that we, the church, need to recognize and address. 
There's a widespread belief among Christians and non-Christians that somehow becoming a Christian precludes the believer's ability to thoughtfully engage with the rest of the world. We're told over and over that we must choose between being a thoughtful person and being a person of faith. Now, I hope you recognize that that is false, that you can do both. The problem is, though, that many times the way we conduct our own lives suggests that we actually accept that false dichotomy. Sometimes our actions even make these beliefs a bit more explicit. Uh, I'm willing to bet a good number of you have either made this kind of a statement or have heard others make it and didn't think about what might be problematic whenever you said or heard it. How many of you have heard something like this? Well, if you prayed more, you wouldn't have all of these questions. And if you're like me who got interested in philosophy, you heard that more than once. There's an implication there that what you need is not intellectual answers, so you just better pray for faith. Maybe there are no intellectual answers. How many of you have heard someone say this? I really like that preacher. He's so funny and relevant. Well, Lying right beneath the surface is an implication that those preachers who expect you to engage your mind during their sermons somehow aren't as worthwhile or as valuable. What I'm getting at is that sometimes we Christians will act as if thinking is not a genuine part of Christian discipleship. And I'm inclined to think that our society has begun to just accept our practice at face value. We don't act or speak as if being a thinking person is important and those around us have taken us at our word. Why is this? Why, how did this come about? Well, there's a lot of different ways you could address this. And and what I want to do today is, is talk about a couple of different things. One, I want to say something very briefly about the historical causes of this, just so we could sort of trace out where this began, because it's not part of the Christian history. Uh, I want to give one example of what that looks like in our community today, and then where we'll spend the bulk of our time is I want to unpack a few things about how this attitude is hurting our own personal spiritual development. So let's begin. What are the causes of the failure to intellectually engage with our faith and the world around us? Well, uh, historians have made the case, and I'm sure you can talk with uh, Dr. Krauss to get more details on this, but historians have made the case that this shift away from informed and deepful, thoughtful Christianity began sometime around the revival movements in the 19th century. Um, This is what led the uh, historian George Marsden to write that, quote, anti-intellectualism was a feature of American revivalism. Since then, The church has made many great achievements uh, when it comes to promoting areas of our understanding that are directly related to personal salvation or to the bringing about of a revival. And that's good, and we shouldn't discourage that, and we should continue to try and make advancements in that area. The problem is we've not broadened beyond that. In his uh, influential book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, another historian, Mark Knoll, comments on this trend, and there he writes... The evangelical culture is one where intense, detailed, and precise efforts have been made to understand the Bible, but it is not a culture where the same effort has been expanded to understand the world, or even more important, the process by which wisdom from Scripture should be brought into relation with knowledge about the world. We may have, and in fact at Tyndale, we do have many brilliant theologians and biblical scholars 
But there's a problem in that too few in the local church care deeply enough about that brilliant scholarship. Even more problematic is how few people within the church care about the same degree of scholarship in other areas, areas like history, philosophy, English, etc. Now, I think recognizing the sort of historical origins of this, this trend is important. But between then and now, there's been a plenty of opportunities for the Christian church to correct course. So why haven't we done that? Well, I think I can, there's probably more, but there's at least three reasons for this, for why we've continued on that trajectory started so long ago. Uh, First, our culture as a whole is not concerned with the life of the mind. And I think we, the church, have simply followed that same trajectory. We are, to quote the title of a book related to this, amusing ourselves to death. You could think about it in these terms. A culture that allows for something like TMZ to thrive is a culture that is far too concerned with triviality. Uh, Just the other day, I saw a statistic that more Americans filled out March Madness brackets than voted in the presidential election. Now, as an American, that's something I'm not all that excited about reading, but we The church, I don't think, give many reasons to think we're less concerned with triviality than the culture around us. Now, a second reason that we've continued on this course is that whenever we look at our our society, those who are deeply concerned with important matters tend to be overwhelmingly anti-Christian. And this, I think, makes it very easy for Christians to think that there's some causal connection between developing the intellect and a diminishing faith. Um, whenever I was growing up, people said things like this, oh, uh, you want to go into ministry? Well, that's fine. Just don't go off to cemetery or your faith will diminish. Instead of seminary, it was you promote your intellect for the diminishment of your faith. You go to seminary and your faith dies, right? It's that... It's easy to continue to think that it's one versus the other, promoting your intellect and your understanding versus a, or having a faithful uh, relationship with Christ. This is why I think we continue to allow that dichotomy to rise because those in our culture who are concerned with more than trivial matters tend to be anti-Christian. Instead of equipping ourselves to be able to address and respond to those who are critical to Christianity, we have simply decided to retreat. Now, to be honest, for many Christians, this may have been a wise decision because they simply lacked any training whatsoever on how to go about answering those objections. But that's just further amplifying the problem. Finally, the reason I think we've continued on this course is that many Christians have simply ignored all the relevant biblical data regarding the life of the mind. In our zeal to have a personal relationship with Jesus, we have failed to consider all of the various ways that that relationship is actually developed. And we'll consider that biblical data in just a moment. Uh, But before we do that, I want to talk about one way this may show up, and it may uh, be true even of of some of us in the room today in our own community. How does this failure to intellectually engage with our faith, what does that look like? Well, here's one example. Many today, maybe many of us, have bought into the lie that education is primarily concerned with job training. 
Now, I know there are Encounter Day students here, and maybe some of their parents are here, and they're thinking, wait, what? What's going on? Uh, Now, um, don't get me wrong. When you go off to get an education, it should prepare you for gainful employment at some point. My point is, is that an education should be about so much more than that. In fact, I'm inclined to think that getting a job shouldn't even be your primary focus. Now, some of you might think that's just what the philosopher says. Uh, but, um, I think instead, though, what we should do is approach our studies as a way to love God and serve his church. That is our primary focus. That is the primary aim of an education, is equipping ourselves to more fully love God and serve his church. If you dedicate yourself to that, what I think you'll find out is along the way, you will find yourself getting prepared for eventual employment. I mean, think about it. If education and developing the mind is simply about job training, job acquisition, then once you get a job, you can stop. And I think, unfortunately, when we look at the church at large, that seems to be what many Christians are doing. Instead of focusing on job training, what the church needs is more men and women who are focused on training themselves how to think properly about their Christian faith and also about how that Christian faith relates to the world around us. Now, what's so unfortunate is that this lack of genuine care for the mind, I think, is actually causing many sincere, devout Christians to actually get stalled out in their search for further spiritual development. They're not progressing in their spiritual development because they're not caring for their mind. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about, is this relationship between the care for the mind and spiritual development. So how does this failure look? How does it look? How does the failure to care for our mind hurt our spiritual development? Well, first, I think it puts us in a place of having unrepentant sin in our lives. Now, that's a strong thing to say, and that may have been surprising to you, some of you, Uh, but I think Scripture is actually quite clear on this. We are all mandated to develop our mind, to love God with our mind. In Matthew, we see an account of how Jesus had silenced the Sadducees using brilliant critical thinking, Uh, and then right after that, a Pharisee asks him a question. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's really in there. I I didn't add that. It's there. (laughs) This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, Jesus would often teach in parables, and if you're anything like me, there are many places where you might find yourself being somewhat sympathetic to the disciples whenever you read the parable and you think, what is he saying? What point is he trying to make there? You know, you can sort of imagine the disciples sitting there, you know, yes, mm, that's good, Jesus, and then everybody leaves and they turn around and like, what are you talking about? And then he's got to explain it to them. Well, that's true. There are things that aren't crystal clear, and we have to do a bit of work to figure out what he's going. But this is not one of those places. What else could Jesus have said to get us to believe and agree that the mind is important? 
he not only commands us to love God with our mind, he even goes out of his way to explicitly identify it as a command. And he doesn't stop there. He identifies the command as being part of the greatest command and then tells us everything else hinges on our ability to do that. Like, what else could he do? This is really important. Jesus is telling us we are to love God with our whole being. And guess what? That includes our mind. Here we see Jesus himself telling us to love God with our mind. And somehow we, his church, find ourselves in places where we remain comfortable with shoddy and lazy thinking. Instead of loving God with our whole person, our every faculty and capacity, we can allow ourselves to skip right over a direct command from our Lord and Savior himself. I think Oz Guinness puts this problem well. And he says, evangelicals have been deeply sinful in being anti-intellectual ever since the 1820s and 30s. For the longest time, we didn't pay the cultural price for that because we had the numbers, the social zeal, and the spiritual passion for the gospel. But today, we are beginning to pay the cultural price. Evangelicals need to repent of their refusal to think Christianly and to develop the mind of Christ. Maybe, just maybe, someone like Jesus knew what he was talking about. Maybe he recognized that when we fail to love God with our, mind, with our minds, we're left in a position of being incapable of getting very far in our pursuit of conforming to his own likeness. I strongly believe that the failure to regularly and consistently in, to engage your intellect as it relates to both the world and our own specifically Christian faith that that failure will slow your spiritual growth. And so here I want to talk about uh, or to discuss uh, the passage that James read earlier uh, that uh, formed part of the, the title for today's talk, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a passage most of you probably know, and many of you probably know it by heart. But in my experience, it seems that many of us can uh, find ourselves in a position of not really ser taking seriously all that's going on here. I think what you'll see whenever you read these two verses and you, you take a look at them, I, know, I think you'll notice that there are two different things going on here. In verse 1, there's a very clear and obvious call to holy living. How do we do that? By presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. But in verse 2, there's something else. And this, has, this, this verse has to do not with our bodies, but with our minds. When Paul tells us, do not be conformed to the world, he's not simply saying, don't act like others act. He's not talking about that kind of conformance. He's, he's addressed that sort of action in verse 1. Here he's telling us to specifically avoid conforming to the world. How? By renewing our mind. The biblical scholar Leon Morris tells us that here Paul is warning us against a mindless emotionalism. 
and instead is advocating, quote, a deeply intelligent approach to life as characteristic of the Christian who has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. Another scholar, Ben Witherington, has noted that Paul is talking about a process of de-enculturation. We'll talk about what that looks like uh, in just a minute. He's talking about a process of de-enculturation and reorientation. Paul is talking about a change in worldview, a Copernican revolution in one's thinking, not just an attitude adjustment. If you want to know the will of God, you must both present your body as a sacrifice and renew your mind. The two go together. N.T. Wright sums up this pair of verses like this. Verse 1 focuses on the body, but with the mind involved. Verse 2, on the mind, but with implications about what the whole body does. These two verses together refer to the whole person dedicated to God in all things and orientations. Now, I assume that we all know that we use our mind to think. And so perhaps part of renewing our mind is improving exactly how we go about thinking. That we become a community where no longer do they say that Christians are detached from reality. And that becoming a Christian has no bearing or no positive bearing on boosting your intellect. This, I believe, will involve the hard work of studying Scripture but it'll also involve learning how to think well about other areas of our life. Ideas that we find in English literature, philosophy, history, music, popular culture in general. We need to become a type of person, we each need to become the type of person that we can think well about all of reality. Now let's consider one final passage as it relates to spiritual development and the life of the mind. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, I suspect many of you are wondering how this passage relates to the morning's topic. Well, I should confess, as a good Pentecostal, I do believe there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. I'm not denying that. Can't take my credential card from me. Um, However, I don't think that's what this passage is primarily talking about. What are these strongholds that Paul is referring to in verse 4? Contrary, at least to my background, these, I don't think here he's talking about addictions or demons or anything of that sort. I think if we just continue to read a bit, what we see in the very next verse is these strongholds are false ideas. That's what he's concerned about. A a stronghold is a false belief or a false idea or maybe a set of false beliefs or ideas that people hold And they're holding those ideas or those false beliefs works against the knowledge of God. So here are some examples of strongholds that need to be destroyed. The idea that we can only know that which can be established via science is a stronghold that must be destroyed. The idea that all morality is culturally relative is a stronghold that must be destroyed. The idea that our sexual desires, whether for a person of the same sex or the opposite, 
that these desires are uncontrollable and so ought to be given free reign. That is a stronghold that must be destroyed. Any set of ideas that attempts to attack knowledge of God or his plan for our lives must be destroyed using the same kinds of weapons that are being brought against us. This means we must be capable of not only recognizing these false ideas, but we need to be in a position to be able to refute them, to destroy them, to tear them down. We simply cannot do that if we have ignored Jesus' command to love God with our mind and Paul's exhortation to be renewed by the, the, the transformation, of, to be transfer, transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to continue to develop our minds in a way that brings honor and glory to Christ himself. Now, before wrapping up, I want to quickly address two possible concerns that some of you may have. Some of you might be thinking that this morning I'm putting too much focus on the development of the intellect. And I'm doing so to the exclusion of the sort of the affective dimension to our spiritual lives. Well, that's fair. And in some sense, I might say, yeah, I am doing that. (laughs) But that's okay. We need to keep in mind just how often and how frequently we overlook the life of the mind. Sometimes you'll find that you need to momentarily oversteer for a bit so that you can wind up on the correct course. Now, a second concern, though, uh, is I think a bit more pressing. Some of you might be thinking that what I'm talking about here is not for you because you don't take yourself to be smart. That this developing the mind bit, pursuing God with our intellect, is what smart people do. Well, that is decidedly not what I have in mind. Now, it is simply true that some of us are more gifted intellectually than others. When I think about where I was as an undergraduate student, and then I look at my current students now, um, especially those I know best and my philosophy students, both those that I have now and that have, have already graduated, I'm regularly blown away by how much more intellectually gifted they are are than I I am. I'm blown away by their capacities to think well, uh, and I have no doubt that many of these students will wind up being far better at philosophy than I will ever be. That's undoubtable. But because those students are smarter than me and will be better philosophers than me, does that mean now I suddenly no longer have an obligation to love God with my mind? Well, of course not. I use the gifts and talents that God has given me. That is how I honor him. And the same goes for you too. Whatever you think of your own intellectual abilities, you can use those intellectual abilities in the pursuit of God. One of the many reasons I love teaching at Tyndale is it allows me to be part of a community that sets itself apart for the purposeful development of men and women who can think well, about both the Christian life and the world around us. At Tyndale, we, students, faculty, staff, we have an opportunity to be a different kind of Christian community, a kind of community that our world desperately needs. We can show the world that the life of faith does not come at the expense of the life of the mind. We can show fellow Christians how thinking well about our faith fosters our spiritual development. 
We can be a resource to those Christians who are not yet capable of destroying these strongholds themselves. That's something that we, Tyndale, get to do. Now, let me close with one final quote from Charles Malik. You may not know his name, but um, he gave an address back in 1980 at the opening of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Now, his comments then were addressed to an American audience, and so they're sort of situated within an American context, but I believe they apply to us in Canada too. Malik says, The greatest danger besetting American evangelical Christianity is the danger of anti-intellectualism. The mind, as to its greatest and deepest reaches, is not cared for enough. People are in a hurry to get out of the university and start earning money, or serving the church, or preaching the gospel. They have no idea of the infinite value of spending years of leisure in conversing with the greatest minds and souls of the past, and thereby ripening and sharpening and enlarging their powers of thinking. The result is that the arena of creative thinking is abdicated and vacated to the enemy. Who among the evangelicals can stand up to the great secular or naturalistic or atheistic scholar on their own terms of scholarship and research? What you're doing right now matters. What you're doing right now matters for your own spiritual development. It matters for how we lead the church. And it matters for how we engage the culture around us. We must continue to take seriously the biblical call to love God with our minds, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and to destroy strongholds raised against the knowledge of God. So to answer Malik's question, who among the evangelicals can do this? Well, we can. Those of us who make up the Tyndale community can stand up to these great scholars on their own terms. We, those part of the Tyndale community, can make a deep and lasting impact in the, with our culture if we continue to take seriously the call to love God with our minds and allow that to inform all that we do. Let's pray. Dear God, we are thankful for all that you have done for us. We're thankful that you have given us the ability to know you, to explore your, your, the riches of your existence, to explore how you uh, have reached out to us, to understand how that relates to the world around us. We are thankful that we have an opportunity to be part of an institution like Tyndale, where we can set aside a, a significant period of our life to pursue you with our minds. I pray now for the students that are here this morning who are feeling anxiety and stress that comes with this intentional pursuit of you with their mind. I pray that your spirit will give them a sense of peace and comfort. I pray that you will encourage them, remind them that they can do all things as they rely upon you. Help us, the Tyndale community, to be a different kind of a community that can shed a true light that will be received by the world around us. We thank you again for all that you've done, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Go in peace.